Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. We're on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. This week, we're going on a wonder tour of James Cameron's Avatar. We're still in series on map making or cartography, but now we're going to take that and twist it a little bit from the physical maps that we talked about in Indiana Jones to start talking more about our maps of reality. When we talk about maps of reality, what we mean is our worldview and the models that make up our understanding of the world around us. We know that those models are not necessarily always accurate to how the world operates. For example, in Avatar, Jake is this Marine who comes to this completely new planet who isn't prepared for this mission as he's taking over for his brother Tommy in the Avatar program. Jake initially tries to approach the world as if he's still on Earth and he's still a Marine and if all of his maps of reality must just also ring true here. Jake somewhat quickly and also somewhat slowly comes to realize that his maps of reality aren't going to work on Pandora. And isn't this just what it's like to be in business and in life sometimes? We get into a certain space that we haven't been in before, and it turns out that our map of reality just doesn't seem to work right here. We're going to center around the phrase, it's hard to fill a cup that's already full. This is something that Natiri says to Jake, and Jake, of course, immediately responds by saying that, well, his cup's empty. But as the viewer, we know that that's not necessarily true. But as magnanimous leaders, we want to live out of a world where we know when to empty the cup and how to leave space in the cup, or to say it a different way, to leave space in our map of the world, in our map of reality, to continue to grow and learn and have empathy and compassion on others. Let's jump into Avatar and see how different characters deal with that challenge of not having a complete or accurate map of reality. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. So Avatar, still the number one highest grossing movie of all time, likely to remain so. Most of you listening have probably seen it. If not, fix your life. Go take care of that and come back and listen to the rest of this episode. Obviously, this movie resonated with a lot of people. James Cameron in full, epic, iconic filmmaking mode. So Drew, maybe I know this one's personally uh, important and exciting to you. You've been wanting to talk about this for a little while. So what stuck out to you the first time you saw Avatar and what has stuck with you? What are the things that you think it did especially well or the, the elements of it that you thought resonated? Yeah, this one's near and dear to me and probably to a lot of people. I think this was a true cinematic experience. At least from my discussions, having this probably is one of my top 10 or so movies of all time. I like to talk about it, bring it up in random conversations and hear what different people have to say. And while some people may have soured on it a little bit since its initial release in 2009, I think the sentiment is generally overwhelmingly positive still on this film. I think a lot of that has to do with that initial viewing that people had in theaters. A lot of people saw it in 3D, and this was one of the first movies that effectively used 3D to convey a story. James Cameron absolutely nails this. This is why I love this movie, because what we always talk about on the Wonder Tour, what makes a really good story in a good movie? It's the creation and connection of these concentric circles, smaller and larger circles that are kind of being opened and closed throughout the movie. 
it's the connection of the visuals, the soundtrack, and the story that really propelled this one for me. While there's parts of it that aren't necessarily doing anything extraordinary, it's all of that together that really held it together. And maybe I could talk about the one moment I remember that stuck out to me at first in my initial viewing. It's when Jake first enters his avatar form and he is kind of busting out of the little hospital room that he's in and running away from the doctors who are trying to sedate him. And then he runs outside and as he's running past and kind of stumbling through, he almost runs into the mech. And then you get this moment where it goes underneath his feet behind him and you see him kicking up this red dust or red mulch kind of, and it kicks it right into the face of the audience. And that moment, those concentric circles locking in there of, wow, this 3D is really good. This world is beautiful. This viewpoint really hits me as a person. And then the story arc of Jake having legs, who is Jake's disabled, right? And so him having legs for the first time and him pulling himself out of the medical equipment and running out there and immediately wanting to use his legs, even though he's a little bit unsure of himself, that sort of locking in happens all throughout the movie here. So, Brian, talk to me about what this means to you when you first saw it. You know, like I said, epic scale James Cameron filmmaking. When you think about the the movies that he's made, you know, you're not looking for quiet, cerebral character studies. What you're looking for is this sort of iconic characters and value-driven stories that are also just kind of visual feasts. <laughs> like with all of these amazing imagery on the screen. And so, yeah, this one was immersive in a lot of the ways that a movie can be immersive. Um, and certainly not only the 3D visuals, but just sort of the verticality of the world and how he really used scale and scope very effectively throughout, contrasting the, the human world, the human equipment and all of the olive drab stuff with the little blue glowing screens with the crazy Fibonacci spiral circles and <laughs> colors and shapes and size and movement out in the Navi world. The visual language of this movie is is very sophisticated and he's not doing a terribly complicated thing with it, but it's really effective at sort of like you like you said in the intro, presenting these competing worldviews so starkly that we're confronted with this conversation about the competing worldviews and the what do we value and how do we get to it. He does a making mountains out of molehills sort of thing, which we always talk about in movies is a certain technique that you can use because you're so short on time and scenes. And yet you have to tell this really compelling and large scale story. We never see Earth really here. The only thing we see is just a couple scenes at the beginning, but it doesn't show Earth. It doesn't show anything about what Earth is like at this point. But we get the feeling based on some of the other things that are mentioned and based on how we see the humans operate on Pandora of what that's like. So I don't know. I just I had to add that because I feel like he masterfully kind of characterizes humanity and Earth. And he does make it a little bit bolder and a little bit more obvious than it necessarily had to be. But like you said, the way he does that, it contrasts it with the world of the Navi and how they have a different relationship with their world than humans do. Yeah, I think that's probably a good time to sort of bring in the the what if element we talked about, right? Part of the setup of this movie is Jake as the unexpected interloper, the completely naive you know, neophyte in the situation. What happens if Jake's brother, Tommy, doesn't fall ill, takes his Ph.D. in his three years of training and drops into his avatar body and graces team and goes out to do the thing that he was supposed to do? Like, how is this a different story? 
Let's talk about the interloper element here. So we pulled in interlopers a number of times in the past. We're starting to realize, I think, that magnanimous leaders need to be some sort of an interloper. To call back to Stranger Things a couple episodes back, we have to be able to move between the right side up and the upside down in order to be able to lead effectively and empathize with people. So Jake, inherently going into the Avatar program, doesn't have to do that, but he is an interloper of sorts. This is the perfect tie-in to having the cup be full already or the cup be empty. I think we can see that with Grace and with Norm that their cup isn't necessarily totally full, but it's pretty full already. They kind of have this pre-developed view of who the Navi are and what they do, and they're continuing to let it develop, but uh, maybe there's not enough room for wonder. And so if Tommy's one of them, if he's a scientist type, an ecologist, then I think he comes in with a little more of that view, a little bit of a pre-formed view, whereas Jake comes in with a fully formed view, but it just gets nuked pretty early on and he has to redevelop it entirely. Now, what happens if there's not that nuking moment and instead you have a cup that's already fairly full and you only have so much room for Navi culture? Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to look at it. Throughout the first half of this movie, we have everybody, including Jake, treating Jake as if he's dumb. So Jake comes in and he is physically gifted. And that turns out to be his entry to the, the Navi culture because they value the warrior skills and the, the riding the horses and the shooting the bows and the jumping off the trees. Right. So he's he's able to do that, which is his entry to the to the culture. But the reason he works as, you know, as this kind of a protagonist is he comes in thinking he has a, a long term goal, but he doesn't really have a, a short term goal. He's like just there to do whatever he's told. And he calls himself a jarhead and the Navi call him stupid over and over again, like a child, like a baby. Right? <laughs> he's just an idiot. And Grace is just, you know, she's just like, oh, just relax and let your mind go blank. That shouldn't be too hard for you. Right. <laughs> she's very derogatory about his intellectual capacity. But because of that, he doesn't have any ego about how he knows everything. And everybody else in the movie has already fixed their worldview very strongly. You know, the colonel is like, I'm here to protect everybody. And the, the, the entire world's trying to kill us. And so I'm just I'm here for defense. And the Navi are like, these aliens don't understand our ways. They will never possibly understand our ways. And we don't need to understand them. We just need to keep them away. And the scientists have their like, oh, it's it's like a network. It's like computers. It's like biology. Like they're thinking of it in very, you know, in their own terminology. So Jake, by not having any training, by not having any skills and by being therefore open is the empty cup and kind of is able to bridge the gap there. And that's a that's a recurring trope. And we'll talk about the dark side of that potentially in the in the second episode here, I think. But the idea of going into a situation and being open and being willing to humble yourself and learn is, of course, one of the one of the core storytelling elements and also one of the core messages here. In order to be magnanimous, you have to be somewhat of an empty vessel. And, and what is Jake's avatar except a completely empty vessel at the start, right? <laughs> it's literally just a husk that he's going uh, to animate. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> so we had to pull in that avatar piece somewhere. I'm sure it'll continue to recur, but... Just to complete the what if arc, I mean, what happens if Tommy comes in? Well, I think he's too slow to adapt here. I don't think he gets in with the Navi fast enough. I think Grace's plan is, you know, she's not taking those bold steps. And if Tommy's going to kind of fall in that same vein of just, OK, we'll just take some samples. <laughs> we'll just continue to take some samples and run some tests at the lab and we'll do some training on English and on the Navi language and slowly we'll move together. Well, that's not going to be fast enough because Parker and the 
kernel are they're hungry, right? They've got investors or whatever that are giving them trillions of dollars to go on these missions. So they have to have some sort of deliverable. <laughs> they need a hard ROI. And so they're not going to be able to wait for that long play, basically. And Jake, Jake has to take drastic steps. I mean, he has this moment. And again, it's not necessarily emblematic of most of our leadership journeys, but he has this moment when he has to go become Tariq Makto. And he's like, I got to do something crazy. The only way they're going to let me in is if I do something crazy. And I just don't see Tommy being able to make that step. He's more making smaller iterative steps. Yeah, well, honestly, Tommy probably gets murdered in the jungle the first time he gets off the chopper, right? So, you know, he, he just doesn't survive that whole scene. <laughs> so, yeah, because yeah. he's not really an interloper. He's an, Well, he's a different type of interloper, right? Grace is a different type of interloper. Than but he, does, he doesn't have the skill set to survive. You know, he doesn't have the ability to learn those skills. He's busy with other skills, potentially. So. You know, going back to the maps of reality, right? Like they do that fairly explicitly early on. They show the colonel and the, the business crew. They show the 3D animated map of the world. Like they're like, here's the tree that we don't care about. And here's the thing down here that we do care about that's under the tree. Like that's their whole value system, right? Grace and her team, they have their own map. And they're looking at these, you know, hey, look at these things moving around. Look at the energy. Look at the communication. Like slowly, like you said, slowly, but developing their understanding of the world. And they are suspecting that there's something there, but they don't have the leverage. They don't have the strong opinion about this is why it's important and why it's valuable. And the Navi are at ground level or <laughs> above ground level. They have a very fine-grained understanding of it, and they have a very holistic, integrated understanding of it. But they aren't grasping the scale of what's going on, the, you know, the threat from the humans. That's the bridge that, of course, you know, the, the classic setup for this movie is that we've got to bridge those two worlds, and our, our hero is going to be the one that, that gets to figure that out. Throw back yes. to Andy here, Brian. Right. The generalist versus the specialist, right? It's like the Navi have more of the generalist skill set, and they can navigate... Their map is extremely effective for flexibility, but the mm -hmm. humans ha are the specialists. They're scientists or they're, you know, they're military, and they have a very narrow purpose and skill set to do a very specific thing, much like a mech. Right? The mech has a very specific skill set, and it doesn't go outside of that skill set. And so when it has to fight a panther or a navi, it's maybe inflexible to be able to navigate the terrain in a way that it needs to be able to do. Well, and we also see some, you know, there's heavily implied right the discussion about it's much easier to destroy something or to extract something than it is to grow it or develop it in the first place of course a, a very strong ecological theme here right of disrespecting the value of these complex systems because there's the shiny rock buried under it but that's also a real thing if you if you want to brute force your way to the one thing you care about there's a lot of collateral damage potentially involved and they crank it up to 11 and have sort of the ridiculous comic book bad guys blowing up the home tree. But it's an element that he plays with very effectively. So let's take it to the mountaintop here, to our moment. Brian, do you want to bring us in? Yeah, one of the effective elements throughout the story is the video logs, where, where we're getting little snippets of insight into Jake's mind back in his human body, back in the various labs and, and shacks where they're staying. And so we see him starting out with like being excited about the mission or being skeptical about the mission. We see him becoming aware that there's conflicting motivations, and we see him as he embraces the Navi reality and as he gets to spend time with them, realize, you know, how much trouble he's in and start to get really confused about his own identity. Where does he fit and what is his role? 
we get a video log where he kind of officially flips and, you know, he's looking into the screen he's kind of haggard and he hasn't shaved in a couple days and it's three in the morning and he's like, everything's backwards now. Like out there's the true world and in here is the dream. And he's really not sure which person he wants to be. He's not really sure which sets of values he wants to adopt. And he's realizing that these things are somewhat irreconcilable, that this is not going towards a happy resolution. Yeah, the maps of reality aren't compatible, essentially. What he's learned on Earth and what the goals and the objectives and the methods that the colonel has been pushing that he's kind of played into. And I mean, he has. He's provided information and he was really bought into that initially. He's realizing that that might be incompatible with his new truths that he's coming to understand. And I think maybe one of the easiest ways to see the shifting realities here is through Jake's understanding of Ewa, the Navi deity. So at first, Jake comes in with this kind of, he's tinged a little bit by Grace. He's like, yeah, they have this deity and maybe it's a supercomputer, a network of supercomputers or something like that. And then uh, on the other side, the colonel who's like just thinks it's all made up and it's stupid and they're less than him for even thinking that it could be true. But then as Jake has these moments where the little light blossoms come down onto him and where he sees the bonding with the animals and he sees the home tree and eventually the tree of souls, Jake comes to understand like, oh, maybe Ewa is real. And if Ewa is real, then maybe I have to completely throw away some of these maps of reality that I have because they're incompatible with this idea that Ewa is real. All of these things are connected. The stuff that the Navi have been saying is not made up. This is legitimate. And if we harm anything in this environment, it's harming everything in this environment. Yeah. And this and again, this is just grand scale philosophical filmmaking and storytelling, which is really fun. If we step back a little bit from the good versus evil paradigm or the colonial oppressors extracting the resources versus the virtuous noble savages. If we step away from back from that a little bit, that basic dynamic of if you immerse yourself in the new reality or in the new role and start to start to spend some time with it, you'll understand what it values and what it's there for. Even in our, you know, even in our leadership world and our business worlds and our in our personal worlds, the challenge of many of us having in many cases by design conflicting values or defending different viewpoints is a real challenge, is a real thing that we experience. And so you may, you may be in an organization where there's one group of people who are in charge of making sure that the money's flowing properly and that you know, we're not going out of business, and a different group of people that are in charge of making sure that the product is as good as possible, and a different group of people that are in charge of making sure that the employees are treated as well as possible. And those sets of values can come into conflict. You can't be the best at everything all the time, or you will be faced with challenges where you have to be a little bit less good at one of them to make one of the other things happen. So that's sort of a natural tension. That's a leadership challenge, of course, to balance competing priorities and distribute resources accordingly and make sure everybody feels like part of the team. But one of the common things that happens is you're sitting in your chair with your goals and your metrics or KPIs. And you start to view the other people inside your company as enemies. Oh, they're just they're just bean counters. They're just trying to cut costs and they don't really care about the customer. And I'm the only one that defends the customer and I got to subvert them in any way possible. And you've got the same thing going on on the other side of the table. And that is very dangerous, right? When you don't have a higher level shared purpose, when the leader hasn't communicated how we're all going to make these things work together when you're not striving for that synergy, then you get all-out conflict, you get politics, you get kingdoms and warlords and little fiefdoms, and you get people that are opposed to each other inside the shared mission. 
So I think there's a, some real pitfalls there. And at a great, beautiful, colorful scale with lots of explosions, we're seeing some clear, <laughs> some clear explications of that in this movie, where as Jake gets immersed in a new worldview, he naturally embraces their values. And when he embraces their values, he discovers how they're in conflict with other people's values. And so that's that's not at all an unusual thing. And it doesn't have to happen at this scale to be a very powerful or potentially risky experience in your own life or your own work experience. So the business mixed incentives angle here is really interesting because like you said, there have to be mixed incentives to some extent, even if you're part of a really cohesive organization. So the business mixed incentives angle is really interesting. So you kind of have to have mixed incentives in a business because there are dedicated roles for specific things. You know, like you said, it's somebody's job to make sure that the product or service sells and it's somebody else's job to make the product or service, whether that's manufacturing or software development or <laughs> whatever it is, right? And those objectives are not going to always be in line. But I think this is the key part as we're in the map making series is to take it one level deeper and make it maybe one level more explainable, even though it's going to be a little bit harder to grasp at first if you're not already thinking this way. Underneath of those values and objectives that are different, those mixed incentives are different maps of reality. That's the key is that underneath the maps of reality are not aligned or they're not overlapping enough. And the expectation can't be that one person is going to have a map of reality that's just the best and we just use their map of reality. If somebody had just the true map of reality and everybody else could just click subscribe, right? I love that. The like button for reality. I'm in. Sign me up. But yeah, no, that's great. And that's one of the things that came to me as we were talking about this is that on Wonder Tour, you guys really developed this concept of the magnanimous leader about these attributes that you would need to have to skillfully lead people in this complex, you know, complex world. And there are no magnanimous leaders in this movie. By design, it's about conflict, but nobody in this movie, none of the leaders are trying to embrace synergy. None of the leaders are trying to build a shared reality. They're all fighting for the version of reality that they've been handed and the mission statement that they've been handed. And so even Jake, when he kind of breaks through and decides to switch sides and decides to become Taruk Makto, he doesn't find a way to bring everybody together. He finds a way to kick the aliens off the planet, right? And so that's a challenge, right? You know, can you find a, a version of shared reality that everybody can buy into that includes the things that they value? And can you chart a path forward or a, an objective or a way of operating that respects those things and brings them together at the points where they have to be brought together. And that's a huge challenge, but it's, you know, it's exemplified. It's a big challenge because of these imperfectly shared worldviews, as we've talked about. So I think to make this a little bit more tangible, how do we start to move towards a more of an overlapping maps of reality when we have, for example, sales's map of reality doesn't align with IT's map of reality, doesn't align with manufacturing's map of reality or whatever? How do we move more towards the center? And especially being only one person, it doesn't matter if you're responsible for a large organization, you're still only one person with finite time and energy. So how can we try to overlap? And to maybe pull in some of our previous tours that we've been on, I think there's a compassion angle. That is a very effective way to create that gate, to pull back to the Stranger Things episode, that's needed to break through between the layers. It starts with flipping the script. And that's a really hard thing to do is like as a magnanimous leader to be the first to say, I admit my map of reality is not the best, but I'm willing to work with you to understand better your map of reality and see where the common ground is. And even, and the hardest part about being human for some people is to admit I'm wrong. Say that my map isn't correct here. My model doesn't quite work. 
Well, and I don't know that you have to start there, right? Like going back to your going back to the cup metaphor, right? You're like you don't have to start with my worldview is wrong, but you might need to start with my cup might not be full, right? <laughs> I might not understand what you're seeing, right? So I wouldn't recommend going to the salesperson in your organization and saying, I see you. That might be creepy. But <laughs> but that that basic approach of looking more deeply into a person, of of approaching the people that you interact with with compassion, not as their role, but as their situation, as their values, as their mission, that's the challenge. That's going to be a step that you have to take before you can get to realizing where the specific conflicts are or where the potential solutions or alignment might lie. So I just want to, I'll point out without giving a name, I was doing a leadership evaluation for somebody that I work with recently. And when I was filling it out, I was kind of crystallizing some of my thoughts about this person who I have a high regard for anyway. But when I was doing this evaluation, I was kind of realizing that this person is really good at that humility and creating connections and breaking across the silos. This person is one of the best that I know at breaking across the silos. I think it ties in here because the reason that they're so good at it is because they don't espouse their map of reality too loudly. They have a map and they clearly share it when the time is right, but not in every single meeting. Not that they don't talk about the mission and the vision. Absolutely. Right? They're bought in. But when it comes to their map of how to achieve those objectives, the how, basically, the where, those type of questions, they most often try to first understand other people's maps of reality before they start to consider how to solve the problem using their own map of reality. So I think maybe what if we put those two together? Because you're totally right, Brian. I don't start by just saying, like, my map of reality is wrong. I see you. <laughs> Let's start by saying, maybe my cup is too full. I need to empty it somewhat. You know, maybe my cup isn't full at all and I need to fill it up. But then from there, we can start to work towards, I'm going to listen to your model of reality first. And I'm going to try to take that in and not make any judgments on it before I start to move towards any sort of a solution or path forward. Yeah, just the basic listening, the basic paying attention to people, right? You know, they, you've heard it time and time again, really effective leaders, people will say, I really felt like they were listening to me. I really felt like they understood my problems. I really felt like they took time to, you know, acknowledge what I was saying or what I was experiencing or what I needed. It's time consuming and it can be difficult to remember to do it, but it's not hard to do. You don't need to have a whole ton of skills. You don't need to have a sophisticated map of the world. You don't need to understand everything to sit down and listen to somebody and look for opportunities for alignment or look for things that you didn't realize. That's a first step that anybody can take at any level. But it's especially important to remember when you're a leader and everybody expects you to have the answers, to not bow to that pressure of you're in charge, so just decide and you know, still being open to filling up your cup some more. <laughs> that's, that's something we can all work on. I like what you said there as we're kind of wrapping down, walking down the mountain here, that it doesn't require incredible map making ability for the first step. The first step, you don't have to be a master cartographer to create the right maps of reality. You just don't. The first step requires no map making skills at all, basically. It just requires time and energy. It just requires willingness to listen to other people's maps and to try to truly understand them. Yeah, it requires the humility to take that first step and to be open. So I think that's a good place for us to wrap up part one of Avatar. Just to get some key takeaways here, we talked about how it's hard to fill a cup that's already full. 
We saw this in action in Avatar, especially with Jake in this episode, where as he's going into this new world, he has all these maps of realities that he has from Earth and that he's gotten from maybe Grace and the scientists and that he's gotten from the colonel and the military. And he's having to rework those maps and really to unfill his cup. He's having to pour out his cup at some point, and there's some pain in that. There's some mourning in that pouring out of the cup, but then he's able to refill it. And when he refills it, he finds that he finds new truths, new values to cling to that were much stronger than the first ones that he had. And they really make him alive. So in business, there's this challenge that we have each as individuals to figure out, is our cup too full? You know, is our cup not full enough? How are we going to have a working map of reality that isn't a working map of reality that's understanding of other people, that sees other people and doesn't just assume that I know best? Do you have yeah. anything and if you're, if you're And if you're marshalling your forces for an all-out war against other people in your organization, you may have missed a step in the magnanimous leader's journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We shouldn't be uh, starting with that step. If your map of reality is starting with the only way forward is through somebody else, then there's probably an intermediary step that needs to be taken where we evaluate how full our cup is or how complete our map is. And if it's actually accurate to reality at this point, if when I go into somebody else's space, I really know how I can operate there or if I need to humbly learn how they operate in their space, what their culture is like then we can start to make a path forward together. All right. Well, as we move towards Avatar episode two here, we will address the burning question of where did Grace get a Stanford t-shirt that would fit an Avatar body, as well as discuss how and when we need to reset our maps of reality. (laughs) We'll see you next time. And just remember, character is destiny. 